Good morning, church family. My name is Dr. Mary Kerr. I teach the sciences and Bible at Battle Creek Academy. It's my pleasure to teach these students. Um, this fall, we had an opportunity to, well, this, this uh, actually in February, we started planning a science trip. Um, I've been teaching the kids about creation and evolution. And it takes as much faith to believe in evolution as it does in creation. There are some real challenges to the concept of evolution. In fact, if you look up on YouTube, you can see a video where it shows over a thousand world-renowned scientists stating that they're skeptical that Darwin's theory of evolution answers um, the question adequately of the origin of life or biogenesis. Um, and so we've been looking at some of these things. We've been listening to um, evolutionists and creationists debate. Um, we've talked about how if we see all that exactness and precision in nature, wouldn't, and God really was the creator, wouldn't we see that exactness and precision not only in his book of nature, but also in his written word, the Bible? And so we, today you're gonna to hear presentations um, from the students that talk about that. Do we see that same level of precision in the way God has interacted with us in, in his written word as we do in nature? For the science trip, um, we really prayed that God would open a door because we needed to raise $3,500, which was a lot of money. We needed to have, um, we wanted to have a place to preach these presentations once in Cincinnati. And so we prayed that God would open the door for us. We'd get approval by the school. Um, the, we'd raise the funds. We'd have a church that would invite us. Actually, three churches invited us in Cincinnati. So that was the answer to our first prayer. But not only did we present um, in Cincinnati, but one of the other churches that we couldn't preach at brought us lunch, so we interacted with two of the three churches in Cincinnati. Um, but God answered our prayer not only in that way, but um, six churches, uh, five churches have asked us to present to them, and one asked us twice. So this is our fifth presentation, and we have one more. So God has blessed us far and above and beyond what we asked. I want to thank the church family for their support, because not only were we able to raise $3,500, we raised $3,800 and fully funded the trip. So thank you for your church uh, members for your support. I'm very excited and very proud of my students as um, they introduce to you some of the concepts that they have grabbed hold of and researched and found about the precision and exactness of God. And I just want to say to all the mothers out there, um, happy Mother's Day. So. Today, we're going to be talking about God's plan and perfection. And we're going to be answering three questions to answer that. So number one is, why is creation important to our faith? And the first question is, what are we if God created us? Well, in Jeremiah 1, 5, it said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I, I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So we are God's children, and he knew us before we were born. So doesn't that make you think you have a reason to live? 
And because our Heavenly Father wanted us to have the chance to progress and become like Him, He created our spirits and He provided a plan of salvation and happiness that necessarily includes this earthly experience. And the next question is, what is our meaning and purpose in life? So, um, our purpose is to follow the way of God and to obey Him rather than man. And our meaning to God is very important because He made us in His own image. He gave us choice, and most importantly, He gave His sons to die for us so that we could be saved. God has plans for everyone before we even exist in the world. And He showed His love for us many times. So how important is that to you? And the last question is, how does believing in God as a creator change our worldview? Well, first of all, it makes us have a reason to live and have faith that we will be raised from the dead and have everlasting life. It helps us believe that we will be with God in heaven. So it gives us hope in our worldview that there is a creator who cares about us and know you and what you will be before you were born. And in Ephesians 2.10, it said, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So God knows what we will be doing before he even created us. And so the next slide is about um, how it takes as much faith to believe in evolution as it does to believe in creation. So... Here's an example of a challenge to evolution. So scientists say that energy cannot be created or destroyed, but it happened at the Big Bang, so how did the Big Bang occur? And nothing can be faster than the speed of light, but it happened at the Big Bang. So scientists say the Big Bang occurred, but they can't prove that, I mean, they say that energy cannot be created or destroyed. So so if you believe that the Big Bang happened, it takes as much faith to believe in creation too. Why? Well, if you believe in evolution, you're putting faith into something you don't see or even know. God's position. Uh, Jeremiah 29 verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declare the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So God has a plan for our lives and regardless of our current situation. And those who follow and believe in God is promised eternal life. So when I see the exactness and precision of how things work in science and nature, I see that God always has a plan for everything. And if God's spoken word resulted in an order and precision way, I would also see that in his written words. So I went to my Bible, and this is what we find. So what kind of, so God ex exactness and precision on the Israelite camp. So could we talk about how God shows his plan and exactness on the Israelite camp. How did they set up? God commanded Moses to have them set up their wilderness camp in a specific ways. 
The encampment layout of the tribes of Israel was set up according to the groups of tribe placed together on each of the camps for size. Camp layout of the Israel in the wilderness. The camp of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon were on the eastern side of the tabernacle and were under Judah. The camp of Reuben, Simeon, and Gad were on the southern side of the tabernacle and were under Reuben. The camp of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin were on the western side of the tabernacle and were under Ephraim. The camp of Dan, Asher, and Naphtali were on the northern side of the tabernacle and were under Dan. The table in the middle of the camp. The temple in the middle of the camp. The tabernacle was situated <coughs> in the very center of the map, with the twelve tribes in camp around it. Where did the Levites camp? In Numbers 1, 47 to 50. But the Levites were not less, along with them by their ancestral tribe. For the law spoken to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi, you shall not take census of them among the people of Israel, but appointed the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishing, and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it, and shall come around the tabernacle. So the Lord commanded Levites to come around the tabernacle, and also Moses came with them too. So here, as you can see, um, this is how the camp layout worked. And if you look at it carefully, um, beside like the edges, it tells how many people are in each tribe. And when you add all those up. Um, um, like you could see that it makes a cross. So like, this is like another way Jesus pointed his death on the cross from the Israelite camp. After Moses died, are there a new leader? Joseph 1 to 3 says, Moses the Lord's servant was dead, so the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, who had been the assistant of Moses. The Lord said, My servant Moses is dead. Now you must let Israel across the Jordan River into the land I'm giving to all of you. Wherever you go, I give you that land as I promised Moses. So after Moses died, God chose Joshua as the new leader. So now we're going to talk about um, the, the Israelite march in order. So 
the answer is yes. They did march in order and he used Joshua to tell his people. So in Joshua 6, 6 through 11, it talks about how they march around the city of Jericho. So if you can see in the picture, it said um, from Joshua, it said um, the seven priests carrying the trumpets and blowing it while the ark of the cov Lord covenant followed. Then the armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard followed the ark. So this is one of the way they march in the wilderness. And another way it, it tells us in Numbers 10, 1 through 8. Um, it tells us that God spoke to Moses and told him to make two silver trumpets, one for congregation and one for directing the movement of the camp. So when they blow, both of them, all the congregation, shall together before Moses at the door of the tabernacle. But if they blow once, then the leaders or the heads of the division of Israel shall gather to you. And, and in number 10, 5 through 8, it said, When you sound the advance, the camps that lie on the east side shall then begin their journey. When you sound the second time, then the camp that lie on the south shall begin their journeys. They shall sound the call for them to begin their journeys. And when the assembly is to be gathered together, you shall blow but not sound the advance. The son of Aaron, the priest, shall blow the trumpets, and this shall be you, to you as an ordinance forever throughout your generations. And in number 10, 11 through 13, it said that, Now it came to pass on the twentieth day of the second month, in the second year, and that the cloud was taken up above the tabernacle of the testimony. And the children of Israel set out from the wilderness of Shinai on their journeys, then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So they started out for the first time according to the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. So here in the picture of the right, it shows that a pillar of clouds told them or led them where to go, and they followed it. Which tribes march first? In Numbers 10, 14 to 27, it tells us which tribe went first. So, Judah tribe went first, then Reuben, then Ephraim, and lastly then, as you can see in the order. Okay. The sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari carries the tabernacle and the Kohathites carry the holy things and the things that are in the tabernacle. So, can I go back? <laughs> so in the right side, um, that's the tabernacle and that's like the inside of the tabernacle. And if you look at it from a drawing perspective, it shows another cross, like the cross of the Israelite camping. So God showed us uh, many signs of how Jesus will die for us on the cross. And were there leaders in each tribe? Well, yes, there were leaders in each tribe of the camp. And it, it tells us in Numbers 10, 14 to 27, that, and these are the leaders 
in each tribe. Thus was the order of march of the children of Israel according to their armies when they began their journey. So all this is how God tells the Israelites to march in order. It makes it easy to follow and help people. And so God is very specific about what he is saying and how it is to be done. It shows the way of God's perfection, plan, and meaning like we showed you the cross we showed you before. Thank you. Um, I'm happy Sabbath. Um, before we start, I just want to thank God for everything. And second, I want to thank Dr. Kerr, Pastor Rob, and Dr. Fernando, and everyone else that was involved for giving us this opportunity. And I uh, kind of found it ironic because um, out of all my classmates, out of five churches, I happen to be preaching here. And on this day, uh, six years ago, May 7th, 2016, um, my dad had his last sermon. And now on May 7th, 2022, I have my first sermon here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, to get us started, um, we're going to be talking about prophecies in the Bible. And on our, uh, to get us started, I'll be talking about why creation is important to us. On Colossians, first, uh, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, it says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things are created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or power or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. So then everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Why is believing in creation important to our faith. As the Bible states, Jesus spoke the word and everything was created through him. If you believe that Jesus spoke everything into existence, do you believe he is speaking in your life today? If his speaking brought all heaven and earth into existence, what changes would it make in you as an individual when he speaks to you? Wouldn't his word have recreative power on who you are as an individual. So it's extremely important that you believe both in creation and in it redemptive power to recreate you as a new person. Creation versus evolution. There's so much pressure to believe in evolution and abandon our belief in creation, but it takes as much faith to believe in evolution as it does to live in creation. And here's an example of a challenge to evolution. Um, Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking, as we know, is a world-renowned scientist. He is considered one of the most intelligent people in the world, one of the most brilliant theoretical, um, one of the most brilliant theoretical physicists in history, perhaps even more brilliant than Albert Einstein. But he lacks one thing in his famous quote. Um, it says, "Because there's a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing." Um, he is starting from a faulty premise. If something can create itself from nothing, using the law of gravity, 
Where does the law of gravity come from? We know that scientists cannot explain the origin of gravity. They can only describe its effect. But as a Christian, we know that the gravity came from the hand of God. And not only did it come from God, he sustains it each and every day. And to go more in depth in gravity, our next slide, uh, we'll be talking about precision in nature and science. Yes, gravity. Gravity is the universal, the universal force of attraction between all matters. The gravity is the force that holds the sun in the, uh, the gases in the sun. Gravity is the force that causes the ball you throw in the air to come down again. The gravitational force formula is 9.81 meter per second squared or 32.2 feet per second squared. And if the gravitational force was altered by, um, next slide, that number, um, it's 38 zeros before one. Our sun wouldn't exist and neither would we. While scientists can say it's mathematical constant and describe gravity, they're not able to explain the origin. If our planet were to lose gravity for five seconds, it would spell the end of the world. Humans and other objects will become weightless without gravity. If we have no gravity force, the atmosphere would disappear into space. The moon would collide with the earth and the earth would stop rotating. We would, we would all feel weightless, and the earth would collide with the sun, and as a consequence, we would all perish. And this is just in five seconds. No one really knows where gravity comes from and why and how it remains constant over the course of time. This precision and exactness has been maintained from the time the world began. With every detail that, that God prepared when he created the world, we know that he is trustworthy and faithful to us. We've seen example of God's exactness in science and nature. Now let's see if we can see the exactness in the Bible. Uh, prophecy. Bible prophecy. Prophecy, meaning the definition of prophecy, a prediction. On a pronoun, it's prophecies. And in a sentence, the prophecy that David would become king was fulfilled. Um, for our first uh, prophecy in the Bible, we'll be talking about Alexander the Great. Daniel received a vision of the Middle Persian Empire, which had in 539 BC overtaken the Babylonian kingdom. God names the Middle Persian and Greek empires specifically in Daniel 8, 20 through 21 and 10, 20, 11, 4. The ram had two horns. One horn was longer than the other, which represented the empire of the Medes and Persian. And none could rescue from its power. He did as he pleased and became great. Then a goat came from the west with a single horn between its eyes. He represented the king Alexander. In five... 356 BC, Alexander was born. He died 32 years later, and he only reigned for 13 years. Alexander overthrew the whole Persian Empire and everything in between, including Israel. Alexander died undefeated in battle, but without an apparent heir, which led to the division of his empire among four of his generals. Even though his empire was split, the Hellenism he spread continued. Greek became the universal language, and Greek 
culture was required or encouraged in all parts of the divided empire. Um, Alexander visited Jerusalem in 332 BC. Before visiting, he had a dream. He was with the Jewish priest dressed in white robes, and they brought some pages from the book of Daniel with them. When he visited Jerusalem, Alexander met and greeted them for the first time. He told them that he recognized them from a dream he had many months ago when he was planning his conquest back in Greece. One of the Jewish priests named Jedua read prediction from the book of Daniel to Alexander. One of those predictions was that a Greek king would come from the west, bring down the Persian Empire, and conquer the entire world. Jedua claimed that Alexander was the Greek king mentioned in Daniel. Alexander then bows before Jedua and makes sacrifices to God of Israel. Um, our second prophecy that we're going to talk about is Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great. The actual birthday of Cyrus the Great is not clear to this day, but it was believed he was born between 600 to 580 BC in Ashan, Persia. Today's day, it would be Iran. And Cyrus later died on the 4th of December, 530 BC. He was 70 years old. Cyrus the Great is extensively known for founding the Achaemenian Empire. He conquered vast territories from modern Turkey to modern Oman. He is famously known for freeing the Jews from Babylon and ending captivity of the Jews. He also issued the world's first human right charter to protect religious minorities in his kingdom. Cyrus the Great, Cyrus, uh, Cyrus II, Cyrus the Great, or King Cyrus, is mentioned more than 25 times in the Bible. 150 years before Cyrus was born, the prophet called him by name and gave details of Cyrus, kindness to the Jews. In, giant, uh, in Isaiah, it says, This is what the Lord said to un this anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nation before him. I summon you by name and bestow you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. Isaiah 41, 1 and 4. For our next prophecy, we'll be talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel was an intelligent young Jewish man who lived in Jerusalem during the late 600s BC. He had three friends, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. Daniel's natural ability and help from God soon led him to an appointment to the Babylonian kingdom. The God of Israel gave Daniel the ability to interpret dreams and also presented Daniel with several visions and their meanings. Nebuchadnezzar's dream. One night, Nebuchadnezzar Nezer was awoken by a frightening dream. The king called for his advisors to interpret his dream. The king's wise men, his magicians, astrologers, and sorcerers had no idea of the dream or the meaning. The king told, they told the king that it is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. He became so angry, and he gave the command to begin killing his wise men and Daniel and his three friends. When Daniel heard about it, he was determined to prove God's power to the king. Daniel asked the king for time to figure out the dream, and the king gave him time. Then he proceeded to pray all night. God then revealed the king's dream and its meaning in a vision to Daniel. The meaning of the dream. Daniel explained that the king had seen an amazing image standing before him. It had a head of fine gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet and toes partly of iron and partly of clay. 
He saw four beasts. The first was like a lion, the second like a bear, and the third like a leopard. The fourth was dreadful and terrible and incredibly strong with a huge iron teeth. The beast had ten horns in, on his head. Then explained that the statue represents a series of kingdoms, each less glorious than the one before. Daniel identifies Nebuchadnezzar as the head of gold, stating that God has given him much power. 2,500 plus years after the dream, history reveals that Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and Roman empires are the four kingdoms. Babylon empire ruled from 625 to 539 BC, and as predicted, the next kingdom was Medo-Persian empire, which began in 538 BC and lasted until 330 BC, when it was overwhelmed by the Macedonian empire, led by Alexander the Great. This empire conquered the whole Persian Empire in three years, with spear cunning and stealth like a leopard. Finally, the fourth kingdom, Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, the kingdom of, of iron, was the most incredible, incredible war machine the world has ever known. As predicted by Daniel, it was powerful, cunning, and cruel. It ruthlessly conquered all the kingdoms that had preceded it. The last one is Jesus. Um, for our last prophecy, is about Jesus. An essential prophecy found in Daniel 9.25 says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome time. In this verse, Daniel talked about how long it would take for the Messiah, Jesus, to come to earth. Approximately seven weeks and 62 weeks. And if we were to use the year-to-day code, it sums up to exactly when Jesus was 30 years old in 2780 when he started preaching, going around preaching. And if you, if you look on the right, um, you can see on 2780, Jesus called his first disciple. On the birth of Jesus. Long before Jesus was born, many prophets foretold events related to his role. These prophecies were given to people to recognize Jesus when he came and have faith in him as their savior. For example, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, Isaiah 7, 14. He further declared, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. Every prophet in the Old Testament has testified to Jesus. They foretold how Jesus would be mocked, despised, rejected, spat on, and even crucified. God taught his prophet that Jesus Christ would be resurrected. Furthermore, they knew that we would be resurrected because of him too. Whether through the lives of great leaders or the life of Jesus, we can see God's precision and tender care in all his work. Good morning and happy Sabbath. Um... So today, you guys have already heard about how the Israelites camped around the tabernacle. Our presentation is going to go over the details and specifics of the tabernacle itself. But before we start, uh, I just want to give a little shout out to all the mothers and, you know, specifically my mom. <laughs> She's not here, but I don't know, maybe I can grab one of those flowers and take it home.
Creation is important to our faith because in creation we get to familiarize ourselves with God because he reveals his character in everything he creates. It says in Romans 1, 19 through 20, for what may be blown about God, what may be known, whoops, about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Whenever I see the beauty of nature in his creation, I'm reminded that I have a wise and loving God, and he sustains all of creation, including us, in very powerful ways. Flowers make our minds blossom with an awareness of God's beauty. They display the mix of God's orderly intelligence with fun, playful ideas. Flowers are living reminders of the beauty of our Creator's love for creation and the wonderful joy we can experience when we're connected to Him. This is a quote written by Ellen G. White, and it says, God is love, is written upon every opening bud, upon every spire of springing grass, the lovely birds making the air vocal with their happy songs, and delicately tinted flowers into perfection perfuming the air. The lofty trees of the forest with their rich foliage of living green, all testify to the tender fatherly care for our God and his desire to make his children happy. God is a very precise creator, and he is a God of order. And not only can we see this in nature, but we can also see this in science. Introducing the fine-tuning argument. It takes just as much faith to believe in evolution as it does to believe in creation. The fine-tuning argument demonstrates perfectly how evolutionists evolutionists would just have to have faith that by chance the world was made with all the exact measurements of the universe. So, basically, evolutionists believe in the Big Bang, something they didn't see. And science doesn't back up their theory, as you're going to see as we move on through our presentation. Um, there is world-renowned scientists that are starting to state that they're being they're becoming skeptical of evolution. The fine-tuning argument is about how the constants and qualities of the universe are all carefully set to a, very, to a very precise value, a value that falls between an extremely thin space that permits life. If that number was changed by the smallest number, there wouldn't be life, planets, stars, or chemistry. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If that number was changed by 1 to the 10th of the 60th part, none of us would exist. To visualize it, just put 60 zeros after 10. If you ticked that number by 1, by 1, the universe wouldn't exist. The universe would either thin out by growing too fast or collapse on itself by growing too slow. And listen to this. The sun has a surface temperature of 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. If it were any closer to the earth, we would burn. If we were any farther away from the sun, then we would freeze. God positioned us perfectly so we could live because we are all special. Amen? And the last thing I'm going to touch on is how our globe is tilted at an angle of 23.5 degrees, which enables us to have four seasons. If the moon did not remain a specific distance 
If it were further away from the earth, then earth's rotation would slow even more, dragging out our days and nights. Scientists believe that anything can happen with enough time. But let's say we made a bridge that spans the diameter of the entire observable universe, a distance about 93 billion light years. Then we'll place an amoeba on one end of the bridge, and it's going to cross the entire universe. This single-celled organism will travel at the speed of one foot per, per year. While we wait for one life prohibit life while we wait for one protein to form by chance, the amoeba slides along for more than five octillion years to cross the entire universe and then return. But the amoeba takes off again. It successfully reaches the far side of the cosmos, then heads back home. Yet not even one functional protein is anywhere in sight. For the next trip, we'll add a single atom to the amoeba. After inching its way another 500 billion trillion miles, the amoeba drops off its cargo and returns for more. Will we, will we get back before lucky protein forms? Absolutely. In fact, it will travel another 10 round trips, then 20, 100, 1,000, and there's still no sign of life. But this amoeba continues making round trips until it has hauled off every atom on Earth then all of the atoms in our solar system, then every planet and star in the Milky Way galaxy, one atom at a time. In fact, as we wait for one protein to self-assemble, the amoeba has so much time that moving at just one foot per year and carrying one atom every trip, it will transport the entire universe more than 56 times. That's how long it would take to build one functional protein by chance. I find it amazing how God put so much detail in his creations and made them so complex so our minds can be blown away by our creator's skill. Many scientists worldwide seek to disprove God through science, but actually end up finding him. I think God knew that this would happen, so he's probably laughing right now. The exact measurements. Or, well, we can see God's excellence in order through nature and science, but we can also see this in the Bible. The most holy place was a perfect cube that measured 15 feet on all sides. It was the only part of the tabernacle that was balanced, which, in, which represents the condition of divine nature. The volume of the Ark of the Covenant was one and a half by one and a half by two and a half feet. The volume of the interior of the most holy was nine by nine by 10 feet. And the tabernacle was 15 feet wide, 15 feet high, and 45 feet long with the opening. As a group, we also found a significant hidden detail with the measurements of the Most Holy and the Ark of the Covenant. I find it very interesting that dividing the volume of the Most Holy by the volume of the Ark of the Covenant produces a significant number and it's 144. But 144 relates to the 144,000 that it says in the Bible will go to heaven. We don't know if it's a literal or figurative number in, in the Bible, but that's what we got. 
It says that this group will be alive and faithful through the end times when Jesus comes back. The structure of the tabernacle is characterized by order and symmetry, reflecting order in the universe, which in turn reflects on God, the creator of order. I'll be talking about the four layers that cover the tabernacle included on the list of God's requested items for tabernacle construction. The first two inner layers of the tabernacle were textiles. One of them was made from linen, a plant product, and the other layer from goat's hair. Linen was a fabric made of white fibers from the flax plant. This fabric concealed and protected the spaces of the tabernacle. This linen served as material for the priestly garments covering the Levitical priesthood who served in the tabernacle. This fabric, ooh, sorry. This fabric also, this fabric also, I lost my place. <laughs> okay, this fabric is also included with the covering over the tabernacle, which contains the same symbolism of righteousness and purity. The entire courtyard was surrounded by the white linen barrier and the first layer of the ceiling. The walls of linen illustrated the boundaries of righteousness. No one could enter God's presence except through the door of Christ, who became a sacrifice for us. The linen is the, is the only one of the four coverings made from plant fiber. The other three coverings came from animals. Are you kidding me right now? Goat hair, otherwise known as mohair, is the second of the four layers mentioned and was the first of three animal-based animal coverings for the tabernacle. This covering did not include the skin. Mohair has antifungal and water-resistant properties that can compete with material used in modern tent fabrics. It is also weaved so that it becomes permeable when hot, allowing air to move through the structure freely. When it becomes wet, the hair fibers swell, filling in the gaps, allowing the water to run off it. This black covering, too, serves a practical purpose. Black goat's hair contains a pigment called eumelanin, which serves the purpose of dispelling the harmful UV rays from the sun. This covering served well for shading the ancient nomads from the sun's intense ultraviolet rays in a hot desert wilderness climate. When God created this goat, he designed in the fur to protect him from the sun and the rain, which just shows how God created everything for comfort, protection, and beauty. Linen comes from flax, which is a plant. This represents the core aspects of life, like growth, nutrition, respiration, and reproduction. Man is alive in all of these basic senses, just as plants are. Next comes tolat shani, an animal product, which is wool dyed red. This symbolizes animal life, but it is also the color of blood, representing desire and mobility. Blood had to be shed in order to save us. Argamen, a color within the red family, it symbolizes mankind's unique ability to master desire and become a mobile creature. Tekelet, the, 
the color of the sky and the sea, the color of all that is distant and transcendent. It, it represents the divine, which is also a part of man, who was created in the image of God. When the tabernacle was disassembled, there were six carts for the transport of the tabernacle. Each cart was pulled by two oxen, and these had been donated by the Levites and by the chiefs of, chiefs of the other 12 tribes, precisely for that job, as said in Numbers 7, 1 through 9. Aaron was responsible for the whole ten, temple tent. Under his orders, he had his sons, Eleazar and Ithmar, and the tasks were given to the Levite families in the following way, and it says in Numbers 3, 5 through 8, and the, Lord, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and present them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister unto him, and they shall keep his charge and the charge for the whole congregation before the tabernacle of the congregation, to do the service of the tabernacle. And they shall keep all the instruments of the tabernacle of the congregation and the charge of the children of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. For the transport of these, of these materials, Moses gave his sons Gershom two carts and four oxen. The total weight of them should have been no more than 500 or 600 kilograms per cart. Each cart then had a load of no more than 300 kilograms, which was quite, quite reasonable for that kind of vehicle. God was very specific with the movement of the tabernacle. He was even specific about which family had to carry what piece of the tabernacle. Bezalel and Oholia. Bezalel and Oholia were two men that were chosen by God to build the tabernacle for him. The interesting thing about these men is that neither of them, along with the rest of the Israelites, had any idea of how to use precious metals. For years, all they had done is work as slaves with mud and brick for the Egyptians. The only reason they were able to build such a beautiful temple was because of God himself. It was because God himself equipped them with the ability to do so. Amen? In one of, in, uh, one of the presentations that weren't shown today, um, it says in a verse, Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom. He gave them the wisdom. God put in their minds the expertise of how to do what he wanted them to do. All they had to do was be willing to accept the gift, which they did. Because of this gift from God, not only did they build the temple, but their families became known across the world as the best of the best in their craft. All because of God. This is a perfect example of how God can use you in his own way and take you far in life. Amen? They lined the tabernacle walls with cedar, on which were carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, all overlaid with gold. And chains of gold marked it off from the Holy of Holies. To summarize, God gave detailed instructions for the tabernacle so that he could show signs of his now new soon coming. Jesus' life and sacrifice was represented to us through the tabernacle, science, and nature. As I close this presentation, I want to challenge you to take the opportunity throughout the week to look into nature and see for yourself the beauty of God in nature and science. 